Welcome back, everyone. This will be our third and final segment um, of a series of podcasts where we hope to dive into some important aspects of care for our LGBTQ plus population. As a reminder, I'm Michael Goldman. I identify with the pronouns he, him, his. I'm one of the attendings in the Yale Children's Hospital, and I serve as the co-medical director of Emergency Medical Service for Children in the state of Connecticut. I'm here with my exceptional co-host, physician assistant Tom Balga, who works over at St. Rayfield's and is the pediatric champion there. And then our two content experts, we have Kristen Casey Campbell, who's an APRN in our Yale uh, emergency department on the pediatric side, and Dax Sousa, who's a nurse in the Children's Hospital. Thank you guys again for being with us. Let's dive right into it. Just as a reminder, uh, learning goals for this uh, last segment here is to really for our listeners to gain awareness of specific physical health concerns of our LGBTQ plus patients um, and learn about some common physical and chemical puberty altering tools or agents that our population uh, may use, uh, which may associate with certain morbidities. As a reminder, the ultimate goal of doing all these podcasts is to empower our listeners and later spread knowledge and resources to their colleagues uh, with ways to make all of our EDs more welcoming to our LGBTQ plus population. In the emergency department, we are challenged with the task of not missing that can't miss diagnosis. All right, with that said, any child with belly pain, we have our standard differential diagnosis that we work through. Casey, do you wanna get us started? How do you make sure you're getting the appropriate data that's gonna identify the can't miss diagnosis no matter what population you're working with? Great question. So my number one goal as a provider is to provide compassionate and equitable care. And I want to make sure that every patient and family member that I see feels seen, heard, and well cared for. So initial step, like we've already mentioned, is getting the names and pronouns right. My next step um, is trying to use gender neutral language whenever possible. So examples of this are saying chest instead of breasts and genitals or gonads instead of, you know, penis or vagina. Um, I want to make sure that I'm asking affirming questions and I'm only asking what is medically necessary, not just a curiosity about what parts someone might have. That's not appropriate unless you need to know for your medical workup. Casey, those are really good general practices, and I think they make a lot of sense. You guys have uh, developed a bit of a role play scenario for us to exemplify some of these points. All right, so for this role play, I, Casey, will be playing the part of an ER nurse practitioner, and uh, Michael Goldman will be playing the part of a 19-year-old trans guy named Brody, uh, who's coming in for some severe lower abdominal pain and seen. Uh, hi, Brody. Is that what you go by? Yeah, I'm Brody. Nice to okay. meet you. Nice to meet you. My name is Kristen Campbell. I'm one of the NPs here in the ER. Everybody calls me Casey and I use she or they pronouns. Can I ask what pronouns you use? Thank you so much for asking. Yeah, my name is Brody um, and I use um, he and they pronouns. Okay, great. And I heard from the triage nurse that you're having some pretty severe abdominal pain today. Can you tell me more about that? Yeah, it started just a couple of hours ago and it's so severe. It comes in this like nasty waves going to kind of deep, deep down in my pelvis and groin area. And it makes me want to puke. Okay. Is that in like a particular area of your abdomen or just the whole thing? Yeah, the, like the right side, low, low. 
Got it. Okay. Yeah. There's a few things that we think about uh, when we think about that right side. Um, can you tell me, have you had any nausea or vomiting, any fevers? Yeah, I vomited. I don't think I have fever, but I feel awful. Okay. And have you had any prior uh, abdominal surgeries ever? Yeah, I had my appendix out of four years ago. Okay. All right. So, um, Brody, I know that you are a trans guy and I want to make sure that I'm creating the most affirming, uh, like history and physical for you today because of your complaint. It's going to be important for me to know, have you had any gender affirming surgeries or treatments up until this point? No, no. Okay. So are you comfortable with me using the term ovaries? Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So, because you were assigned female at birth, I presume that you still have your ovaries in place. And I'm concerned that you could have a problem with one of your ovaries. Um, are you comfortable with us getting an ultrasound today to, to rule that out? Yeah, definitely. I was Googling that and that's what I was worried about too. Okay, great. Cool. And scene. All right, Dax, would you like to give some feedback on that encounter? Yeah, I think that if every encounter can go that well, that would be me not needing my shield at all. <laughs> I wouldn't need my shield anymore. So thank you for that. And hopefully a lot of folks learn from this little encounter. I love that. And I think that all of us should be striving to create a medical like environment where all of our trans folks can leave their shields in the car. One thing that we didn't dive into uh, in that role play is a sexual history. Um, and I think that that's a really important thing to talk about. I used to make the mistake in my first, you know, five years of practice of saying, uh, are you sexually active with men, women, or both? And that's not inclusive enough in my mind. So these days I say, can you tell me about your sexual partners? And um, I'll, just a funny little anecdote, I had one 16-year-old who I asked that very question to, and she said, I don't know, he's like 6'2", he plays basketball, he's super fine. And I was just like, okay, I will presume that to be a biological male and we will move on. Um, but, you know, you're going to have these moments of awkwardness. We always do when we're trying to get a sexual history. Just keep in mind that you may be making assumptions about someone um, who may have a trans identity, who may have a different body. So you're going to ask these detailed questions in the most affirming way possible to get the information that you need about, you know, risk patterns and possible STI transmission, things that we really need to make sure that we are uh, providing adequate care for our patients. And, and while we're on the topic of that HEADS exam, which is sometimes how it's referred to uh, with a teenager, kind of confidential questions and discussions around there. Um, Dax, do you want to take us through some specific um, uh, issues and both medical decision-making and surgical decision-making that our patients may go through uh, or make the decisions to go through that may come up during this part of the conversation? Absolutely. So I'll go into the topic of uh, what we call gender affirming medicine. Um, and I just want to preface it with um, not all trans folks decide to go down this route in their lifetime. And to be trans, you don't need to go down this pathway. Um, but I will go through the, the um, different pathways that some trans folks uh, decide to go down. Um, so there are medical interventions. And along with that, there is hormone therapy, this allows for alignment of secondary sex characteristics. Um, it's a, a process, which this is very important to note, 
Um, if a trans person decides to be on hormones and they want to carry out this process, um, it is something that many folks will carry out for the rest of their life. Um, I've gotten that feedback from many of my friends that it's discouraging when you walk into a provider's office and they ask you if you need to be on hormones for life because it sort of creates a, a moment of distrust because it seems like you know the doc should know that. Um, under this, there are puberty blockers. So uh, adolescent, uh, trans adolescents uh, can take that um, early on and then later decide to either go on uh, feminizing hormones or masculinizing hormones. Um, under the feminizing hormones are androgen suppressors, um, spirulatolactone, and then um, many folks can take estrogen, which is not a suppressor, but it's just either taken uh, PO by mouth or um, sub-Q. Uh, this results in breast development, reduction of muscle mass, and fat redistribution. Um, under the masculinization hormones, uh, folks will take testosterone. This can be in gel, sub-Q, or IM form. Um, this results in the deepening of voice, hair growth, clitoral enlargement, um, change in body odor and fat redistribution. Um, and it's important when these folks come in that we uh, ensure that they've been getting their levels checked because this can lead into complications. I know for uh, trans men, it can cause um, thickening of the blood and um, for trans women, uh, there's the complication of clots. Um, I do have a resource uh, that we're gonna put in the show notes from uh, UCSF um, that is very all-encompassing that uh, folks should check out. Um, for surgical interventions, there are top and bottom surgeries. There's chest masculinization um, and top surgery that many trans mask folks, not necessarily just trans men, but many non-binary folks opt to have this done. There's breast augment augmentation for trans women. Uh, phalloplasty, metodioplasty for trans um, mask folks, and feminizing vaginoplasty. Um, also important to note that many of these, if not all insurance plans in the United States now deem this as medically necessary. So um, many folks don't have to pay for these interventions. Uh, hormones are usually a small copay, but the surgical interventions are oftentimes covered. Um, and then there are other interventions such as binding, tucking, and packing. And uh, I think Casey will speak a little bit about this and how this is important um, when we're doing our medical examinations. Yeah, Casey, you had shared with me a story that really stuck in my head. Um, and I believe you were gonna share it with our audience as well about, I believe it was a binding. Absolutely. Um, for those of you who heard segment two, uh, we were talking about my 14 year old, trans guy, Buddy Morgan, um, and I was covering an overnight shift in our psychiatric observation area when Morgan woke up around 3 a.m. and was complaining of severe chest pain and having a panic attack. Um, I you know, talked about that we might want to get an EKG and was trying to help him calm down with some like nice deep breaths, and I asked if he would feel more comfortable taking his sweatshirt off because it was clear he had a lot of layers and was sweating profusely. And he said he wasn't comfortable doing that. And I said, do you have anything underneath your sweatshirt? I could get you something else. And he admitted to me that he had been wearing a binder. And I said, oh, okay, Morgan, that's, you know, I'm glad that you have that, but um, how long have you been wearing it? because at this point he had been in our ER under observation for about five days. And he said, I don't know, I've been wearing it for a day or two uh, before I came here. And I was looked at his 
time in the ER and was shocked to realize that he had had his binder on for six or seven days straight. Um, and that's not healthy. That's not good. We can have Dax talk a little bit more about safe binding tips, but um, it's really important to know that some of these trans and non-binary youth are going to be binding their chests to make them feel more like themselves and that we all need to know the basics of what safe binding techniques are um, to make sure that our patients are safe. Dax, do you want to share with us some of those tips? Yeah, so um, if folks are binding, they really should have had measured their chest um, to get an appropriate binder. There are many resources online um, that sell appropriate binders. I know G2GB is really the go-to website for that. Um, and it really should only occur in increments of 10 hours at max. Uh, they shouldn't be working out with them. They really shouldn't be swimming in them. Um, and they also shouldn't be ace using ace bandages. Um, the other alternative is really tight sports bras. I know that like Nike and um, Champion sell really great ones. Um, so that's a good way for kiddos to, to bind without having to um, use the binder because the, the tight sports bras are a, um, a safer alternative because then you can result, it could result in uh, broken ribs and a lot of chest pain as Casey was describing. There are actually some really great uh, nonprofits and foundations that can provide free binders to uh, teens that need them. And we could link to some of those excellent organizations in our area um, and also link some uh, safe binding practices in the show notes as well. Yeah. So as we think about linking our three podcasts together here, um, you know, making sure that we provide an environment that makes our patients feel as safe as possible is really how we're going to get to the bottom of making sure that their mental health and their physical health is taken care of to the best of our abilities. And I think this has been such an awesome overarching outline uh, of some of the challenges that face our LGBTQ plus population, especially when they seek emergency medical care. Um, we're going to have a ton of show notes with great resources. I'd also like to give a shout to the EIIC, which is through uh, Emergency Medical Services for Children, where there's a mental health toolkit um, where this podcast and other resources will be launched. So we'll have a link for that in our show notes. And as we wrap up our time together, I will just ask our co-hosts and our content experts just to give us one parting thought uh, that we can take to our next shift uh, to make sure that we're doing the best we can to make sure we're taking care of all patients to the best of our ability. Dax, you want to start? Yeah. Um, don't make assumptions and try and be as open-minded as possible. Um, I think starting off general and then moving towards specifics is the best thing that we can do. So general body language in terms of how we refer to anatomy um, and pronouns, ask first before assuming. Casey? Uh, for me, I would just say, be the affirming space, be the affirming provider. Uh, be a place where all our trans folk, all our queer folks can leave their shields in the car. Tom? Yeah, I just want to take this time to really thank Dax and Casey. You guys did an amazing job. Thank you very much. Awesome. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for yeah, having us. It's been us. really fun. It's been really fun to, to chat with you guys. I certainly have learned a lot. Uh, and I commit to practice uh, what you've taught me today. And I hope that uh, you know, every patient that I see can be uh, 
can benefit from the lessons you guys have imparted. So uh, thank you again. And again, uh, we'll have lots of resources loaded to the show notes. We appreciate you. Have a Golden, good day. Can I thank actually uh, make a challenge to our listeners? Please. All right, listeners, I'd like to challenge you to introduce yourself by your name and pronouns and to ask all of your teenage patients their names and pronouns uh, before starting your history and physical. Every single encounter with a teenage patient for the next week, I promise it will feel easier at the end of the week. And if it does, incorporate it into your practice always. They'll appreciate it. Love ending with a challenge. Challenge accepted, Casey.